Hello, Internet. It's Tori. You're listening to the Cosmere Deep Dive Podcast. For updates on when episodes go live, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. To join the discussion, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash CosmereCast, where you'll find an invitation to our Discord server. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy the show. Shoutouts to Jakey, our first ever supporter on Patreon, coming in at the $1 level. Please enjoy that patron status on our Discord. Hello and welcome to the Cosmere Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. Joining me this week are Tori. Hello, Internet. Craig. Hello. And Dave. Hi there. And every week we start with good thing. So, Dave, I think you had one on deck. Why don't Why don't you go ahead and start us off? Oh, absolutely. So, I'm going to talk about an OST today, but not one from a video game. This is from a cartoon from back in the 80s, a little gem known as Thundercat. Fantastic music. Uh, it's been kind of locked away in archives for really long and only recently popped up on YouTube, probably within like the last five years. I love it. Uh, so many good tracks. My favorites are probably Panther's theme and the Thunder Tank theme, which are kind of the same leitmotif, but one's like a slow, funky disco kind of version, and one's like really fast-paced symphonic rock version. Both really good tracks. I hear Tori loves Thundercat. I do, in fact, love Thundercats. I grew up on that show. I thought I loved Thundercats, but I had actually confused it with Voltron. <laughs> I also love Voltron. But Voltron is Japanese, and Thundercats is American. I don't care. <laughs> I'll take any kind of part. I mean, like, how did Mike get him confused? Because in That'd Voltron, be like they drive Voltron. giant robot cats, and in Thundercats, Oops. they're just cats. There's they're cat only people. one giant robot cat, in the be- at first, anyway. They had, I think they make more, like, when, the, when they get the other Thundarians, like uh, Linkso and Pumira also known as Waifu, and the other guy, Bengali. And Snarfer. Snarfer was really, like, Snarfer was hilarious. I loved Snarfer. I love like, Snarf. Like, not Snarf. Snarf was kind of annoying, but he was, like, it was comic relief, you know, typical 80s comic relief character, cute animal sidekick. But he had a nephew who was, like, totally hardcore. He looked like a miniature version of Snarf with, like, a Chewbacca ammo belt for no reason. It was awesome. Okay. Craig, what's yours? So, last night I got together with some friends. We're playing some board games. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to one of my board games that I sort of forgot, like, how fun it is. Uh, Red Dragon Inn. Quite fun. It's a card game. It's, it's about, I mean, you can use it as a drinking card game if you're into that sort of thing. But, uh, it's a nice, relaxing, somewhat quick card game where you're at the, in with a bunch of fellow adventurers spending your gold and trying to basically be the last one standing. But uh, shenanigans happens, and it's quite goofy and silly. It has great artwork, and it has a very nice sense of humor. I actually just kickstarted it. Um, they have, like, different packs of adventures, and I recently kickstarted the seventh main pack that they just released, like, a year ago. Well, they had to kickstart it for a year ago, uh, but I just received it, like, a month ago, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Nice and easy to play. Technically, play as many people as you want. And as I mentioned, you could use it as a drinking game if you really want. So there you go. Super cool. Uh, Tori, what you got? Well, I would like to apologize for some comments I made in the last episode. 
about a bad dog that attacked my dog. I believe my exact words were, some dogs just need to be murdered. That's not true. And I felt bad about it, like immediately after we finished recording, because I do not advocate animal murder. And I felt bad about it. So I donated to my local humane society. And my good thing is, all local humane societies, go donate to your local humane society. Should we have saved that for the spoiler portion? Wait, what? <laughs> no, because that comment had nothing to do with the uh, the story. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I don't know, maybe you were talking about Orser. <laughs> well, yeah, but the the dog Just that kidding. that was Orser or Seer beforehand. That's what oh, we were yeah. talking about um, there's I guess you, was, you weren't there for that. So we did kind of yeah. just like bop him over the head and kill him. Yeah, let me, let me oh, I guess, no. break down the short version, uh, non-spoiler for you. My conjecture is that Vin murders the dog when she when she bops him in the head. Um, it is pewter-enhanced. Hit. I don't I remember if it the... was Craig or Tori or both of them were more like, no, she just stunned it. And then Orsor kills it later. Because it's not a human, so it's not breaking the contract. But I think sh- I think Vin killed the dog. No, I, I looked back in the book, and it specifically says that when he throws it at Orser's feet, it is unconscious. Dead, Dead things, things are unconscious. unconscious. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you describe something as unconscious, though, you're typically mean still alive, but like not sleep, but comatose sort of thing. What, like, what does Brandon have to say about it? He says unconscious. I mean, the best part about this sort of discussion is that it doesn't matter at all. It's completely it meaningless. It really does. Yeah, because Vin is still intending to use this uh, pupper just for its body and it be killed, whether by her directly or by Orser. It's, she's still out to get it. Okay, but let's move on. But anyway, I have my point was... Um, yeah, I felt bad about saying that dogs need to be murdered because they do not. Uh, some dog owners need to be punished thoroughly for their lackadaisical attitudes. But Up to it's and including murder. Look, there are no bad dogs. There's only bad dog owners that need to be re-educated. So on the topic of animals that need to be murdered, this isn't my good thing. This is a bad thing. Uh, my cat loves getting on top of our snake tanks and just oh. hanging out. She's up there now, and I can't get up and go deal with it because I'm recording. Is this the, the younger cat? Yes. Um, okay, so my good thing is uh, a comedy magician who was on America's Got Talent named Piff the Magic Dragon. Uh, my wife and I went <laughs> to go see him last night. He was in Milwaukee for the first time. Uh, we have seen him live once before in Chicago a couple of years ago. Um, the show was excellent. Like, very, very fun show. Very funny guy. A lot of fun. Fun, fun, fun. Um, highly recommend that you go see him. Tickets are not too bad. What We paid, I don't know, what, like 30 bucks each? It was pretty good. Uh, yeah. Piff the Magic Dragon. He was on America's Got Talent. He's been on Penn & Teller's Fool Us. He's done countless local news interviews when he has shows in a city. Um, yeah, good stuff. So, Dave, we read chapters 12 through 14 of The Well of Ascension. You want to walk us through that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But first, I want to address something I kind of nitpicked uh, in the last couple episodes. 
where Brandon, from Vince's perspective, mentions that an Alamancer that burns aluminum will have all their metal reserves depleted. And I kind of raised an eyebrow. I was like, that's interesting that uh, it says Alamancer and not Mistborn here. And I have two theories as to why that is. The first one, the less likely, is that maybe there are mistings that can burn just one secondary metal. And maybe there are misting alamancers that their only ability is to burn aluminum, which just sounds awful. Like That's worse than being a squib. Just your only power is to deny yourself. A wait, 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 wait. Is aluminum poisonous? Because they can just burn it and remove it. So there is an advantage to being able to burn it. Oh, because if you digest it, then yeah. I don't know. How many how many soda cans have you eaten in the last year? <laughs> or drank from? Or drunk from? How many outbreaks of aluminum poisoning have we dealt with in That's the past right. few years? <laughs> uh, anyways, my... Uh, <laughs> My uh, other thinking was that the term Alamancer could refer to a Misting or a Mistborn or a Steel Inquisitor, since Steel Inquisitors also use Alamancy. So that that could be that theory busted. It's just that all-encompassing Steel Inquisitors as well. Which, funny thing, up until these chapters, I wasn't sure if Steel Inquisitors actually burned metals. At least we saw one burn Atium when Kelsier and Finn first go to invade Credit Shaw together. You know, one of them has Atium but doesn't use it initially. So I guess there's that they they burn Atium, but I was just, was kind of wondering if they actually have metal reserves that they have to burn and use up. Uh, at least from in Chapter Twelve, which is written from Sazed's perspective, he assumes that's the case, but eh. A little, it's a little uh, metal for thought, I guess. Metal for thought. All right, on the chapter 12, I got some bullet points here. Crater library. Tin is eyesight. Iron stores weight. Iron is weird. Zazed asks for a lamp as they enter the conventicle, but Marsh can see in the dark with earth bending. They find some dead dudes. <laughs> Marsh goes upstairs while Sazed goes down to find a make-your-own-inquisitor kit. Why the deadies? Sazed finds the original manuscript of The Well of Ascension by Quandon Sanderson. Marsh didn't find what he wanted. Sazed makes a charcoal rubbing off of the steel plate. Sazed can't wait to use his excuse to shirk his responsibility as the giver. <laughs> so... <laughs> So something you said earlier, I just want to say, iron helps us play. Iron helps us play by making us lighter. If That's we, right. Well, or heavier, depending on whether you're storing it or retrieving it. Okay, so we learn a little bit more about Farukami here. We uh, learn that Tin is, in fact, eyesight, as I suspected before. And also we learn a new ferrochemical power of iron. Iron can store weight. So you can uh, become lighter by putting your weight into iron, or presumably you can tap into your iron mind and get your weight back. You need to be heavier at some point later on. Uh, and it's weird because it just like makes you lighter, but not any 
doesn't really change your size. I uh, kind of okay. I what what it was trying to say rather clumsily and using sort of um, period appropriate pseudo scientific language. It doesn't affect your mass. It affects how much of a pull gravity has on you. Oh, I see. Hmm. So, so Sazed slows down space. his fall because gravity is pulling less on him. He has more surface area for air resistance to... Okay. Like his terminal velocity drops to I see. just about nothing, basically. And I may, it lowers the gravitational constant for you, or just gravity? Uh, probably, yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, oh, and also, on page 137 of uh, my copy... It mentions Sezed having tried to teach farmers modern fertilization techniques. So to answer your question from before, Mike, uh, he's not teaching century-old generations of farmers how to farm. He's teaching them modern technique that they probably wouldn't have access to having been slaved. And my argument that that is dumb still stands, I think. Uh, I'm I'm thinking it's less dumb than... You are thinking, but... Yeah. <laughs> All right, so they go into the conventicle, and, you know, Marsh just goes in. He's like, da-da-da. He doesn't realize it's pitch black and says it can't see. Uh, a little interchange about how tin stores eyesight, how uh, it doesn't... It's like low-light vision. It, he can see farther in poorly lit conditions, but it doesn't help him see in pitch black. So, like, Marsh has dark vision, but Sazed only has low light vision, basically. The only thing uh, that can help you see in pitch black is Vin Diesel. Everyone knows this. But Vin isn't a Farukamist, as far as we know. Oh, and Vin Diesel. His name isn't Diesel either, so there we go. Well, spoiler! <laughs> I mean, is she like, is her name Vin Obligatorson? Like. <laughs> Obligatorson? <laughs> yeah. Vin Obligatorson. So, uh, anyway, so they get a lamp, uh, Sezed slowly walks through the hallways, noting the architecture, filling up his copper mines, and, uh, how, like, angular and uninspired the, uh, etchings on the walls are. And he finds some dead dudes, and Marsh goes upstairs, he says, you know, he says, Sezed, you can hang out here, or you can explore the basement, but don't follow me, because... I don't. I don't want to see your reaction to the horrors of the Steel Ministry. So Sazed goes downstairs and he finds a make-your-own Inquisitor kit. This is some kind of laboratory where they transform people into Steel Inquisitors. He sees all these spikes along the wall and a lot of dead bodies lying around. That I assume they somehow use in the process of creating a Steel Inquisitor. And he goes into a further room, which isn't really like a room. It's more like a uh, like an alcove, or uh, it's like cut directly into the rock. It's not architected. Uh, and he finds uh, some words written in steel, written by Quan, the italicized portions of our book, Well of Ascension. They're called epigrams. Uh, yeah, we learned that. Le- we would learn that in the last book. <laughs> we did. Epigram or epigraph? Epigraph, epig- not epitaph. Must epig- must, be, must be epigraph. That makes a lot more sense because epi means on top, and graph would be writing. So it's the writing on top. 
so uh, yeah, so he finds that. So similar to the logbook that we found at Credit Shaw in Mistborn, we have our book characters finding and studying this uh, this ancient text. Uh, this really the only record of uh, a, a terrorist philosopher from the before times, from before the ascension of uh, of Greycheck. All right, so Marsha comes down and sees Cezad reading the wall. Marsha apparently didn't find what he wanted to come to the conventicle of Saren Neged, whoever that, whatever that was. I don't know. Cezad makes a charcoal rubbing of the steel plate. He wants to get everything exactly as it is written, spacing and all that good stuff. And Cezad's like, well, I guess I got to go to Luthadel now so I can send this important document up to the north. But he feels guilty that he is not filling his initial intended purpose as a keeper. And I think he needs to get over it. I think this is important enough that, but I guess he's conflicted because he knows that you know, emotionally, he wants to go see his friends and help out in Luthadel, but whatever. We'll pass along the message. Say that, get over it. Yeah. All right. That's chapter 12. Yeah, I don't have anything here until we kick you off. Oh. Well, all right, then. Chapter 13. <laughs> You're not welcome. <laughs> chapter 13. Vin is afraid of daylight savings time being over. Vin and Orser talk about <laughs> how they can out the imposter. That is so great. <laughs> uh, Vin is like 99% sure that Elend is not the imposter. Zinc and Brass have no effect on Kondra, nor can Kondra use Alamancy. Vin is afraid of Mist Ghost. Uh, okay, so this is the first section wait, 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 in wait, chapter real quick, 19. Yeah. Real quick, I have to read this from the Coppermine wiki, because I just like how this is phrased. Vin notices that the mists are coming earlier, or Seer does not notice, nor think it's strange, but will do so if Vin commands it. She does not. <laughs> yeah, and this is uh, a little bit. She tries to get kind of, you know, still tries to get along with Orser, and she's like, oh, why don't you tell me what you like? He's like, I don't want to. He's like, you don't want to, or you can't, because the conjurer are also secretive about their natures. He's like, I don't want to. Not hint, like kind of giving her the opportunity to command him to open up and be friends with her, but she she doesn't want to force the issue. She has to be polite about it. Uh which interesting, I can imagine if she had gone further, like the conversation would have been like, I like being commanded to do things. So like maybe she actually should have commanded So that seems to be what he likes. I don't know. Uh but yeah, the contract does not require the conjurer to reveal secret things about their nature so uh, he goes into it a little bit but is cautious and doesn't give a lot of details and uh, Vin is 99% sure, like 99% sure it's not Ellen the secret conjurer uh, she was with him most of the day they found the bones but there was like maybe like an hour or something in the morning but uh, she she is choosing to trust the men she loves that question him. And we also learn a couple ways that they might be able to figure out who the imposter is. Uh, for instance, zinc and brass have no effect on chondra. The, those are the emotional, alimantic metals. The chondra won't be swayed by them, uh, nor will they be able to detect that they're being pulled on like a normal person could 
can sense if you're pulling on their emotions if if they're astute. Uh, this could help them find the conjurer, but it's also just likely that someone might have a higher will save than somebody else and just not, you know, not be influenced by the emotional alamancy. They also learn that, or Vin also learns from it worse here, that conjurer cannot use alamancy. So if Vin burns her bronze and detects somebody using alamancy, she can rule that person out which is great. She can rule out Ham and Breeze. Well, Breeze is already pretty much ruled out anyway since he wasn't home when the bones came. And, but anyway, with Ham, uh, it's going to have a harder time with Dachshun and uh, Renault. Not Renault. The guy's name. Soldier Demo. Bone delivery. Is your Breeze here? <laughs> okay. So we also have this mist ghost and Vin is recalling what the Lord Roller had said in his final moments that uh, she doesn't understand what he does for the for mankind, that he's been protecting them from this deepness, whatever it is, and maybe this ghost is somehow related. Okay. And we cut to a scene from Ellen's perspective, which rather heavily implies uh, for us, the reader, that Ellen is not the Chandra. Since we have Ellen's internal thoughts and thinking about how he can out the imposter. But uh, from Vin's perspective, she's only like 99% sure. But for for us as readers, I think we can safely rule out Ellen as the so imposter. Clearly, Vin just needs to read the book. And <laughs> I mean, Sazed started reading it. That's true. Okay, so... Vin totally could have cleared Ellen really, really easily. Just be like, all right, I want to make sure you're not the Chandra. I'm going to push on a specific emotion. I need you to tell me what it is. Done. You know what's funny? I was just about to mention that, but I was going to save it for the spoiler text. I wasn't sure if we wanted to include Dave in there. Like, it would have taken well, about a minute. He would have been totally cool with it because Ellen is down for that sort of thing. Just yeah. done. You know, he would be, but Vin, Vin doesn't, I think Vin is afraid of learning that Ellen is the imposter. Like that's, she would rather live with the, if Ellen were the imposter, live with the lie than find out that, uh, Ellen is the guy, uh, yeah, which, oh, for, for sure, for sure, for sure. That, that's, that's, that's absolutely what's going on. And that's pushed more in chapter 14, uh, that's in chapter 14. It specifically says that oh, I'd, I'd rather be lied to and assume that this is real Ellen. Uh, but yeah, but you're right. Ellen would have been like, yeah, okay, all right, let's this Ellen you. Yeah. So Vin is just like being stubborn and she's just learning to have trust in her life. And she's just having trust issues in that she doesn't want to let go of trust even when she should be suspicious. Okay, so anyways, we're in the Ellen's part of this chapter, and Ellen has a little meeting with the crew, and Ellen is planning to turn Cest and Straff against each other, uh, the rest of the crew, while Ellen was gathering his piles of books to bring to the strategy meeting. Everyone else just kind of came to a consensus and said, hey, yeah, we should turn ourselves into Cest, and hopefully he'll let us have, you know, some small amount of autonomy in Luthadel since he doesn't like it here. Uh, but Ellen's, uh, Ellen wants to go for the whole shebang. He says that, 
we can we can pit Cest and Streff against each other, and once they uh, weaken each other enough, then we can swoop in for the kill. We just have to be ready for an extended siege. We can attack their supply lines on the canals, and then uh, the he talks the rest of the crew into going with his plan because it's like a Kelsier esque, ridiculous, stupidly risky plan, and you know that's what they're gonna go forward with. And then Captain Demo enters in the room with the captured terrorist woman, the terrorist woman that we saw at the town hall meeting the other day. Okay, real Her. quick, can you say the names of the warlords again, please? Straff. And the other and one? And Sest? <laughs> Just Set. Set. C-E-T-T. Set. Set. Okay, I honestly, like, I could, I wrote it down from memory, I didn't feel like looking it up. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's nowhere near as bad as almost everything Craig has said. <laughs> hey, hey. Would it be pronounced set? Like, what would be a more French way to say, like, Chet? Or, like, Ket? Chet. Or is, or Don't Cest? start that. I only had Cest. one year of high school French. I think this is going a little deep for me. <laughs> I think it would just be set. Like, they can say English pronunciation. It's France. It's not bad. You know. It's not France, it's Scadrial. And he's from the Western Dominance, and what's west of France? England. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> no, in the French language, there is some precedence for C being pronounced like S. Like Francois. Like C'est la vie. Yeah, C'est la vie. Isn't that the guy's name, C'est? <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Chapter 14. I just wrote it down wrong and I couldn't remember his name. All right, chapter 14. Tindwill wants Ellen wants to be Ellen's tood mentor. So uh, you have that uh, terrorist woman, and she is a keeper, and she specializes in biographies. And she wants to tell Ellen all about how, uh, you know, how intimidating and not intimidating, how confident uh, leaders of the past have been and how they handled their majesty and command. And Ellen's like, okay. And then she's like, oh, your girlfriend's here. And then Vin shows up. And Vin is immediately suspicious of Tindwell. And Ellen is like, okay, guys, go get a room for Tindwell. He's going to be my tood mentor. And that's chapter 14. So that starts another favorite plot. Uh, Ellen gets my fair ladyed. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but there is also Vin, you know, Vin doesn't mention that she encountered the ghost again since before Ellen had just thought she was being paranoid and seeing things. She doesn't bother to mention it again. She tells him about how they might be able to out the imposter through Allomancy. And there you have it. And, and uh, there we have it. And I'm wondering if Tindwell could actually be the Contra. Seems like the most obvious pick right now, but maybe that's what I'm supposed to think. All right, is that is that your official pick of currently who you think the Contra is? We haven't seen a lot of character action since learning about the Contra. I mean, I guess maybe if I really wanted to go back and reread Chapter 11 and maybe Chapter 10, but uh, moving forward, I'm gonna be uh, a little more suspicious of everybody, but Tindwill seems like a good guess. Um, the only problem is when Sazed shows up, he's probably going to 
It, like I just imagine they're like, who's the imposter? Who's the imposter? What's going on? How can we tell? And Seizet shows up. He's like, it's not Tinwell. It's an imposter. <laughs> like, that's how I want to go. But they're probably going to drag it out a little more than If Seizet even makes it to Luthbell, and I hope he does. It's one of my favorite characters. So, like I said, I've got a lot for the spoiler times. Not so much for right now. Oh, and the other thing was I I think I had also asked before if uh, Condra Alamancy, if they Kirby'd an Alamancer, and that question has been answered now. Assuming, of course, that Orosaur is telling the truth. Yeah, I thought about that, too. I He's following this contract. You know, that's like Condra bound by the contract. But does the contract mean that he can't lie? Is could he possibly have multiple contracts and Kelsher's, you know, only one of them, and there's some other contract that outranks his? I don't know. I mean, he she does say at one point she needs to reread that thing. Yeah, so she's at least seen the contract, but we we haven't. Yeah, but she really needs to get Ellen to read it, like. <laughs> she's no lawyer someone who can better under ouch yeah I mean, well no okay me. Vin has her expertise in in gerbilness and Ellen has his expertise in studying law like that's what it's called gerbilness yeah or whatever what did you call her when she was scrambling food when she first got taken in whatever but anyway her luck no, chipmunking. Yeah, chipmunking, is that what you called it? Yeah, okay. So she's, I mean, she's good at being, you know, street smart, but she's probably not good at reading between the lines in a, a well-written legal document. I think if we're talking about street smarts and eating food, then she would be a raccoon. Yeah, okay. I think that's what, that's the animal you likened her to before. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. So, all right. Do you have anything else, or does anyone have anything for you? Nope. See you next week, Dave. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of no. All right. See you next week. All right. Bye, Dave. Uh, All right. So, Dave is gone. This concludes the spoiler-free section of our podcast. If you are, as I am, reading along for the first time, we recommend that you stop listening now, as the following will contain spoilers for not only this book, but for other Cosmere books as well. There may also be general spoilers from any other source material. Spoilers begin now. I kind of want to work backwards because chapter 12 is oh so meaty. Uh, you want to apparently talk about a lot. Yeah. All right. So, so I, I will mention that it, it's funny that you brought up about how like Vin can discover the Chandra. Because I just had that same thought while sitting here. I'm like, she should just element uh, emotional alamancy the people she suspects exactly like you said i'm gonna do a rant i'm gonna do a random emotion you have to tell me what it is or even like a series of emotions but i guess she doesn't want to do that to everyone because it falls into the whole trust thing which is sort of the theme at least of the first book but the general overall theme of vin is learning to trust other people and that would go against it dave nailed it on the head it's she if ellen is the chandra she does not want to know just period. Yeah. But she's also learning. She's like, I'm going to implicitly trust this one person. So, Tori, you started to say something. Oh, I was going to say um, the reason she doesn't just go do that with everybody is because 
she hasn't told anybody yeah. except Ellen that there's another Chandra around. So, like, she doesn't realize who the Chandra is yet. So, if she goes around telling everybody, hey, I'm going to test Alamancy on you to find this other Chandra, well, that's going to play her hand to the Chandra. Except that there are two, potentially three people that she would need to let in on this that she could immediately clear after letting in on it. That, right. that being Ellen, Docs, and then potentially Clubs, uh, if she doesn't want to, you know, let out that well, she can pierce Clopper Clouds. Like, the people who actually can't, like, who who don't have any Alamancy. Demo, she suspects, later on. Um, yeah, but, but Demo like said, isn't Dox. part of the core team, so she doesn't care that much. Yeah, but again, she could do the thing with just like three people. Like if it's if it's not one of the core team, it's not a big deal to her. Whatever. Okay, I'll just murder Demo and he'll go be a Chandra somewhere else. Um. Anyway, so at one point in no, not in this chapter. In the in chapter thirteen, uh, when. Vin is talking to, uh, air quotes, Orisur. Uh, Kelsier had mentioned that they can't bring the Chandra around an Inquisitor or the Lord Ruler, and he seemed to know why, but I thought that was a secret. Is it just sort of general Chandra knowledge of you hire a Chandra, you don't bring them anywhere near a Steel Inquisitor, or, yeah. like, what's, what's the deal there? I'm guessing it's, like, part of the, the general contract. Because the, the people, like, clearly Vin, is given something of the contract that that she has with Orsir. So, like, there's probably, like, a general term there that says, like, don't bring a Chandra around an Inquisitor because it won't work. Or maybe it'll, it'll be something as simple as the Inquisitor will figure it out or something. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to say why, just don't do it. Okay, I I kind of figured that was what it was, but I wanted to bring it up. The Lord Ruler also is, was, R.I.P. Lord Ruler. Anyway, he was always using emotional allomancy on everybody. So if Contra are indeed immune to emotional allomancy and that was not a lie, then it would be instantly apparent to the Lord Ruler, at least. I mean, it's it's not like it's... Anything that weird, there is that scene in the first book where Renault is sort of near the Inquisitors during that whole scene where he was captured. Um, so I think it's just a general guideline so people don't figure out the flaw that I think they call it later on in book three, the Chandra flaw. Okay, well, that pretty well clears that up for me. Um, so chapter 12, huh? <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into this? Uh, nope. Okay. Well, Tinwell. Shout outs to Tinwell. Yeah. Dude. Tinwell's awesome. I'm excited that she's, that she's in the book now. Yeah. She is, she is one of my favorite characters. Too bad she's only in this book. Yeah. R.I.P. Tinwell. Hmm. Okay, go on. I've been trying to think about who to cast her, or who to cast as her, and I've got Nothing. I have absolutely nothing. I got one. Hang on. We have we have something from the chat here. Ufir says, I don't what? like her. Why? What? Why are Why? you wrong? Explain your wrongness. Okay, here's here let me help with this. Look at her scenes with Vin. 
Not with Ellen. Like, with Ellen, she's sort of like, you know, he's a noble. He was pampered. She has to act a certain way to sort of get the message across. When she's with Vin, she is much more like a mother-like. Like, she's has a completely different approach to Vin. That's how you can see, like, I, I feel like that's when a reader can start to like her when they see how she interacts with Vin. Also, there's, you know, the budding relationship later on with her and Sezed, which is just good, but also eventually, of course, sad. And she absolutely, completely cons Ellen here for, like, no good reason True. either. Like, like there was absolutely no reason for her to be like, yeah, your Mistborn's right outside. Ha ha, fooled you, sucker. That, that <laughs> achieved nothing for her. <laughs> Well, it, it lets her talk to him. Like, I think it's part of actually gaining his trust in, in a weird way. Lying to him, but proving that she's not like, dangerous. She could have achieved that exact same thing with the truth. No, Tind- Tindwell does what she does. Like, this is everything. Anyway. Um, Alright, so anything else that isn't chapter 12? Crickets. Let's do chapter 12. Okay. So, chapter 12, and in fact, every appearance from Marsh from here to the, basically until we start getting into Alloy of Law, we need to talk about how much Ruin is involved here. Dude, this is all Ruin. Right here, chapter 12, Marsh is fully, is, he's totally being controlled by Ruin. That's, that's my interpretation. I'm not convinced that Ruin is capable of that much control yet. Um, he however, be, he might be able to pick one person, especially an inquisitor who has so many spikes. Like, I think Ruin at least has enough power to control one person. And Marsh is the one he picked, which might be why Marsh gets so many spikes in book three and is like essentially the leader, even though he was like the newest inquisitor. For some reason, Ruin just decided, I like this one. I'm going to use him the most. Okay, and it so starts right here. That's that's part of a point I wanted to get into. Um, so Vin and Zane each have one spike, and they get a voice in their head. It's not a yeah. compelling voice; they don't like have to follow it. But there's there's just a voice in their head. Although Zane seems stronger, it's like, a bigger spike. Well, he's got a bigger spike. Maybe. Uh, real quick, uh, you just reminded me of something I did want to talk about. I'm sorry to just quick diversions. As the reread of Well Well of Ascension, I'm looking at the scenes with Vin and Zane. I'm like, I guess I don't hate him as much as I thought I did. Like, there's more to him than just he's this dude who is acting like he poisons his father and blah, blah, blah. The opposite of Ellen type thing. I'm like, there's there's substance there. And I guess I didn't really give him a fair estimate the very first time I, I mentioned his name. I'm like, it's not that bad. There's depth there because, you know, Sanderson does a good job. I okay. still hate him. There's depth. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. But it's it's hateable substance. He, he's a manipulative jerk, but yeah. He's yeah, I'm, I'm with Tori on this. Boo Zane. Boo Zane. Boo that man. Boo Zane. Okay, I'm not saying not Boo Zane. I, I hate Zane, but I can hate him as a person. Uh, Anyway, back to Marsh. Zane is my favorite. You fear, please. Okay. So what I think might be going on with Marsh, uh, because he has so many spikes and they are much, much larger, um, 
what if he can't distinguish Ruin's voice in his head from his own thoughts? Like, so he just sort of has this, has these thoughts in his head that he can't tell aren't his. Go find Sazed. Go check out the Canton of, or, what What was this place? The Conventicle of Saren. Thank you. The Conventicle of Saranrap. Yeah. Um, That's a good point, because, like, for Zane, Ruin is like, it's, it, Zane considers him God. Like, God commands, like, kill him. And Zane's like, no. But that's a good point. Maybe uh, Ruin doesn't have enough that he, he can't directly control Marsh, but he can mix his words in with his thoughts. And one thing I have for this is when Marsh goes off on his own and tells Sazed not to follow him, I think that's just, like, Marsh being told, don't let Sazed follow you, and then just sort of being left to himself to figure out why on earth he would want that. And right. so he comes up with this, like, extremely weak excuse of, I don't want you to see me being an Inquisitor. Oh, I'm yeah, a monster. how weak is that? When Sazed finds the inquisitor making area which is freaking horrible like if we're talking like you don't want to see what inquisitors up to that's a room you really don't want to show someone but say said yeah go ahead check it out like i don't like and of course why would marsh nor like marsh as a person like this is my part of my argument why ruin has more control over marsh uh, and it's clear in chapter 12 just because of like how marsh is acting like how what he considers the other inquisitors going off on his own, not, don't want to see... Like, Marsh didn't really consider himself an Inquisitor before. He was a spot. Now, they're his brethren. Yep. So, yeah. Um, I, I think what's going on here is that Marsh is, like, getting a mega dose of Ruin voice in his head, except I don't right. think he can tell that it's not his own thoughts. Yeah. So... There's so there's the my official headcanon. What does Ruin want here? Does he is it sort of to make sure Sazed finds the writings? Yes, one hundred percent. He he needs that bit of information out into the right. world where he can manipulate it to get Vin to go to the Well of Ascension. Which is why we have to hurry up. Isn't there a faster way? Because he knows use your copper mine to record it, not like don't record it in any other way. Right. And, you know, take the rubbing, whatever. Just, he need he needs this information out into the world where it can get to Vin. And so he, he can't use Sazed for that directly. There. Ruin knows the writing is there. He can't see it because it's in metal. But he knows it's there. It's in an Inquisitor stronghold. They have read it before. They have probably written it down. They've read it out loud. Like, they are very much Ruin's creatures even even before the Lord Ruler died. So, so yeah, uh, no question. Ruin has the information of, of what's on this metal plate. What he doesn't have is any way to get it to Vin, unless Marsh takes Sazed there, sends Sazed off. I don't know why he doesn't want Marsh to just do it himself. I'm having a little trouble there. Yeah, but... I feel like there's still something else we're sort of missing here. Also, remember in... Uh, like the end of book three, when the message of don't trust anyone pierced by metal gets out? Yeah. Why did that never bring any sort of suspicion on Sazed, who has all sorts of freaking piercings? Does he have actual piercings? Oh, I guess he does. Yeah, like, his ears are pierced, like, in a bunch of spots. He's got, like, the stretchy lobe things. Like, they are right to not, you know, worry about him, 
because it says that he's cool, but why didn't that so ever come I up? I want to point out, they didn't even think about it. Vin had her her earring for ages, and it wasn't until March is able to remove it. It's It's like it took that long to the end to figure out what needed to be done about piercing. So when they probably hear the don't trust anyone pierced by metal, they're probably thinking the spikes like the Inquisitors have. Like, they don't even think a normal earring counts. It's just sort of like that you ignore that little bit just because it's so commonplace that you don't think the message is talking about this thing. Well, but we, the reader, don't even think about the earring until right, exactly. it's such a big deal. I, so. and I think that's sort of ingenious with how it was handled. Like, and and I think Sanderson's doing a better job in book two actually pointing out the earring. Like, there's more points where she, like, removes the earring. It's it's shown to be somewhere else. Uh, like, she removes it briefly to talk about things. Or, or, or there's also the point, I think it's actually in chapter 13, where she interacts with the spirit and she actually feels a pain in her ear when it touches her. Like, there are these little bits of knowledge that, you know, are, are, are information that we can take later on. Yep, and I'm pretty sure that Dave has completely forgotten about the earring again. Absolutely, but it, again, like I said, she points it out, she talks about how it was made, uh, like I've recently, it's somewhere in the th- chapter 30 area, where she talks about where her earring came from, she tells Ellen, and how her mother was crazy, killed my sister, and then gifted me an earring like they're setting up like he's setting up like here are these actions and of course crazy person who we see zane is also pretty crazy eventually we can put all the information together if you're if you're clever to figure it out okay so that pretty well covers what i wanted to go into in in chapter 12 is this is a big important ruin chapter and yes it looks like nothing from from like the first read it looks like nothing it's just oh Okay, we're getting we're getting what the what the italicized text at the beginning of the chapters is. That's cool. <laughs> Last I mean, book we he... had we had Vin and Kelsier do a raid on Critic Shaw and they got the book. Alright, this is that. Right, exactly. Doesn't even in the first book, like getting a, a Lendy's journal, it's like it's like good, but it's not like uh, eventually later on you're like, this isn't even useful at the time because the Lord Ruler isn't a Lendy. So I guess it's sort of the same thing where this maybe isn't as important, but here it is. This is oh. just, yeah, you're right. This is an important chat. And I do like your thought about that Ruin's just inserting these thoughts because people don't know he exists. Like outside of the Chandra, people don't know who Ruin is. So he can like sort of insert himself in this way. For Zane, he's decided to manifest as this crazy God who wants everyone dead. And for some reason, he thinks that's the way to go. For Vin, he's Reen. And he doesn't even have to do much with Vin to to get her to do stuff. Oh, I thought of a uh, chapter 13 thing that I do want to touch on, uh, which is that the conversation that Vin has with with Tensoon here could not have happened with Orsor. Orsor freaking hated Vin and acted on it as often as the contract would allow. He would have forced Vin to command everything. Every single response would have been, do you command me? No? All right. Eat, eat a butt. Yeah, if it's not explicitly mentioned, Orsir would do none of it. 
whereas Tensoon is willing to volunteer information. I mean, eventually they form a friendship and Tensoon's willing to do a lot of things for Vin. Uh, but that's also because he starts viewing her as the Lord Ruler's hair. So, air, not hair. Oh, okay, so, yes. One, this whole conversation could have only happened with Tensoon because Orisur would have been still hating Vin. Two, the friendship that develops because Vin is trying to make up for being such a butt to Orisur. My cat Uh-oh. just dropped a bunch of stuff. Thanks, cat. That was the cat. Um, okay, so... Uh. Vin is only being nice to Tensoon because she's trying to make up for being a butt to Orsor, which yes. then develops into the friendship. Yes. It's, ah. I know. This is, it's like my favorite part of the book. Vin and her puppy go on adventures. And Tensoon's so cool. My cat is a butt, by the way. He is no Tensoon. All cats are butts. Did you say all butts are butts? No, all cats are butts. Okay. Yeah, she doesn't, like, knock things off maliciously. It's mostly because she's functionally a toddler, uh, and she's clumsy, and she likes being up on stuff, and she likes that stuff to have enough room that she can lay down. And sometimes there's things in the way, and not anymore, thump. You know, every now and then my cats will do something like that. Not, not like, they'll, they'll be clumsy, and I'll be like, you're a cat, why are you so clumsy? And they just look at me like, mm-hmm. and I'm like... One of my cats is like the Joker. She just likes to watch the world burn. Ah. She, she knocks stuff down because she likes to watch them fall. Yeah. She'll stand on a high place, like she'll be on the fireplace mantle, and I've got a candle up there. She'll look at me and I'll be like, don't you dare. And then she'll <laughs> what you going to do about it, huh? Like, <sighs> Aren't cats great? They are. I love them. They so in chapter 12, where did the Inquisitors go? I'm sorry, what? Well, we we know the Luthadel Inquisitors are dead, because Marsh killed them. But we still have the other ones, and so I suspect they're probably doing something for Ruin. Like, they're probably preparing things, so that way, you know, his return can happen. Like Maybe they're assembling Koloss armies. There. Yeah, right. They have some Koloss army stuff to do. And or hunting down um, Ferrucamus. Do you think he's still up to that? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, because in Chapter 12, um, when Sazed says, where did they go? Marsh says, north. Toward Luthadel? Sazed asked, frowning. Among other things, Marsh said. Hmm. So, so, yeah. Wow, that's um. Yeah, aren't they're like killed? Isn't? Well, by by the start of Book 3... The uh, the Terrace Ferrucamus population is down to pretty much just Sazed. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think they're mostly killed off. Um, oh, hey, did you guys consider that the Ferrucamus like, population in Era 2 might all be descendant from Tinwill? <laughs> oh, wow. Like, Wax and Wayne might have a common ancestor in Tinwell because she had a bunch of kids. She did. And she had, like, not all of them would have necessarily been Ferrucamus, so they wouldn't have all been killed. Some of them could have survived the end of the world, and they would have still had, like, the the potential genetics to, to pass these these down, so... I mean, I suspect they had more than just Tinwell, uh, but it was a big deal 
when they got her. Like, they actually mentioned it was a big deal that she was picked. But, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that's not the first time that happened. Otherwise, how would Furukami even continue to exist? But certainly in recent times, they mentioned how, like, it's a big deal Tindwell was picked because they don't they're not doing the careful checking anymore because they assume the keepers have been destroyed. Right. Okay. So I think yeah, I think maybe. we've gone a little bit far afield. And do you guys have anything else coherent to the chapters? Puppy? Puppy. Puppy, agreed. And that's an excellent point. I I should think about puppy more. Okay. What do you have to think about the puppy for? Cuz it's puppy. Mm, sure. All right, uh, why don't we go ahead and call it here. Um, For those of you watching on Craig's Craig's Twitch channel, uh, we will be doing a a special State of the Sanderson episode uh, on Wednesday. Uh, We're going to record at 8 p.m. Central, I believe, is what we talked about. Uh, Fairly short recording, um, probably not more than about half an hour. We're just going to go over what... Brandon posted for Colas Head Munching Day, which is his birthday, and every year he puts out a big long blog post of what he plans to do for the for the next year, like what's coming out, what he's planning on working on, what he's got ideas for. He'll give you updates on, you know, whatever whatever things whatever balls are in the air, whatever he's not planning on working on. The past couple of years have been like arithmetist, nope. Arithmetist? Nope. Um, so yeah, we'll be, we'll be Wednesday night doing that. Um, again, should be a pretty short one. And that one I'm going to try to get edited and uploaded same night. Uh, I'm going to be tired. So, all right. Anyone, anyone got anything else? See you Wednesday. Okay. Yep. Bye internet. Bye internet. This has been the Cosmere Deep Dive Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at at CosmereCast or like us on Facebook. Our theme music is Traveling Made Up Continents by Gillicuddy, used with permission. Hear more from him at the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.